electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now and fast, the bare knuckles battle between Disney and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis taking a new turn. The latest development straight ahead. Plus, the Biden administration dialing up the pressure on Beijing. The Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen pushing national security over economic relations with China, while the president signaling new investment curbs could be coming soon. A live report from Washington straight ahead. And later, Tesla's tough day. The stock plunging almost 10 percent on the back of the EV maker's mega margin miss and the company's pivot to growth at all costs. Then there's this. Elon Musk's SpaceX Starship rocket triumphantly making it off the launch pad this morning, but minutes later, that joy turning to pain, that rocket exploding. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money Live from the Nasdaq market side on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Courtney Garcia, Dan Nathan, and with us for the hour tonight, Rebecca Patterson, former Bridgewater chief investment strategist and Fast Money friend. Welcome, Rebecca. Great to have you with us. Well, markets finishing the day in the red as the Dow drops more than 100 points. The Nasdaq falls nearly 1%. The S&P uh, to close off over half a percent. Much more in today's action in just a moment. But we begin with a developing story tonight on Disney. Shares dropping once again today and down almost 3% over the past week as the battle between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and Disney takes a new turn. Disney executives reportedly calling on lobbyists to keep an eye on any legislation in Florida that could hurt the company. CNBC.com's Brian Schwartz here now with that new reporting. Brian, what's the latest here? Well, this did this fight between Disney and Ron DeSantis is just heating up, guys. Listen, what we're seeing here is right after that press conference this past week where DeSantis effectively ripped Disney and said he was moving ahead with this latest salvo with the company. Uh, Disney executives are calling on their legion of lobbyists to start engaging immediately with Florida state legislature representatives or the state and the state house and the state Senate and really start pushing them uh, to kind of take a step back here and think about what they're going to be doing next. Uh, And really the lobbying campaign that's starting to build up here is related to Disney and the land surrounding uh, the the Disney Disney World in Florida. Uh, And so there's a wide variety of bills that they're taking a look at at the state level. But there's some real question marks here as to exactly how much further this battle is going to go as the as Disney's lobbyists are stepping up their game uh, as we go forward here. According to the people you're talking to, Brian, what are the odds that Disney actually loses that special status in that district that surrounds Disney World? I mean, I would think that DeSantis and the state of Florida have a lot to lose if Disney you know, says, you know what? We're going to move. We're out of here. And other businesses might follow suit. I don't think there's any sense right now that Disney has any plans to move out of Florida. And when you look at their their special status, there is some debate as to whether, you know, where that exactly is going uh, for Disney. You know, there's that new board that DeSantis is trying to push forward to have more authority uh, over Disney right now in the state of Florida. And and again, that that new board is really all DeSantis appointees. Many of his allies are on that board who are looking at how to really push back against Disney uh, in the next few weeks. And remember, keep in mind, in Florida, the state legislative session ends in May. So there is only so much time left here uh, for DeSantis and his allies in the state of Florida to really, you know, go after Disney with any sort of laws or impactful legislation. The threat to build a prison adjacent to Disney World, was that just political theater? 
I definitely think it was. Uh, but but I do think it speaks to where, how Ron DeSantis looks at this company and the feud between both DeSantis and Disney. I do not think that there's going to be some sort of state prison built next to Disney World. Uh, but but let's be very clear here. It does speak to the power DeSantis has right now in the position he's in to take on Disney as the governor and as this legislative session comes to an end. And keep in mind, Republicans have a supermajority in the Florida state legislature. And that is important because all of those people, for the most part, have followed in lockstep with what Ron DeSantis has wanted over the years. So if you're Disney, you're really going to have to turn the dials here on lobbying that legislature to try to just get some on your side. All right. Brian, thank you so much. Thank you. Brian Schwartz. You can read the entire story on CNBC.com. Let's trade this. Uh, Tim Seymour, you're a Disney shareholder. How do you take this news? You know, I've heard a lot of a lot of noise around Disney for the last couple of years. And, and, and I think, you know, they were also on some level really in the focus during the pandemic because of what was going on with parks and whatnot. And I, and I think this is going to blow over. I, I, you know, I, no one wants to hear my politics on this anyway. So I'm just going to point out that I think uh, this is a political issue. And I think there are plenty of people on both sides of the aisle that have a strong view. But it does sound like that the view is largely in favor of Disney on this one. Again, my politics don't matter. What I care more about is that the story around Disney uh, was going to move this stock is is really less in the way of streaming losses, uh, an asset mix, maybe something strategic. Are they going to spin off ESPN? You know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, Bob Iger um, is the guy to handle the next strategic step for this company. And if you want to, you know, again, get back to the politics here, Bob Chapek was the guy that really might have even started the politics. So or at least was responding to the politics that were brought upon Disney, depending on how you look at this. So um, I'm going to choose not to be investing in Disney based upon the noise around this. I think it's got the best assets, you know, certainly in in the business. I think the diversified business model, the multiple here is not that attractive. But um, I am a shareholder. You know, it's interesting. Back in February, when they reported their fiscal Q1, um, you remember the stock had just had this massive run. And then they put up this beat uh, on the EPS. They talked about costs. It was one of Iger's first times to really speak to the street again. Um, I know he's been doing that for decades here. And the stock gapped up and then it closed on, the, you know, on the low of the day and then went down like 20 percent from those opening highs. So to, to Tim's point about valuation, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that Bob Iger is going to have a honeymoon period. He's going to be able to do a lot of things. And I think to Tim's point about this kind of tit for tat with DeSantis, I mean, if you had to ask me, I'd bet on Bob Iger on this one. Okay, like Disney's been there for 100 years. It's going to be there for another 100 years. Um, And it really seems about a lot of culture war BS, you know. Um, Also, Disney, largest employer in Florida, to your point, yep. um, it, you know, it's not something that I think is a winning issue if, uh, if, if voters have to decide. Um, but to the point I would just say is like if some of the stuff that we're seeing about the consumer, um, I don't think some of the stuff we're seeing about streaming, um, I don't think this is probably going to be a great quarter and a great guide when they um, report in a couple weeks. And to me, the stock remains in a bit of a downtrend. If shareholders like Tim think it's a bit of expensive, when they just put up a great quarter last quarter and couldn't hold those gains, um, to me, it probably seems like there's room down towards 90. It was Disney employees that brought the political fight that demanded yes. that Disney get into the political fight because Bob Chapek's initial response was to not wade into this potential morass. And then because of the outrage expressed by the employees, he said, you know, what? we're going to put a statement against out against this bill. And so this really speaks to it and not to be political because this could be any political yep. issue out there. You know, if your constituents, whether they be your shareholders or your employees, demand that you take a social stand on something or a political stand on something, that can just invite risk to the company. And how do you how do you yeah, weigh that? That's the era we're in now. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw it initially with the U.S.-China tensions, more interventionist policies, economic policies that were driven not just by 
um, a political goal, but an economic goal, social goal. And now we're seeing that play out through the pandemic and now through ESG issues, not just at the national level, but here we are on the state level. And in the case of Florida, I mean, they were given a gift in that people migrated there in droves during the pandemic. They have low tax rates. Mm -hmm. They have good geography. They have all these things going for it that benefit Disney as well. But if DeSantis wants to keep attracting companies to Florida, which is one of the top five states in the country for GDP contribution, he's got to be careful how he steps through this because the last thing they want is a chilling effect. And one last thing I'd say on Disney specifically, you know, you think about some of the benefits they get from the Reedy Creek area. Mm -hmm. Their ticket sales pre-COVID, just the ticket sales revenue for taxes was equal to the entire state's budget for elder care. And that is a big chunk of their budget. There's a few elderly folks down in Florida. Just a few. Uh, a few yeah. who might care about that, yeah. for sure. Yeah, and I, I think this is going to blow over, which I think you use that term here, because ultimately I think this is what DeSantis wants, is it's in the news right now. We're talking about him. He's all over the news. He's in this bid for presidency. So I don't know how much this is going to go, but he wants the publicity and, you know, what's bad publicity at the end of the day, and I think that's what they're getting. Uh, but ultimately, I think when you look at something like a Disney stock, um, I think this news is going to blow over. I think it's selling off specifically on this. I would not worry about that. I do think it trades pretty expensive, but I think over the longer term, there's a lot of opportunity here, especially Iger has just stepped into this role. He's just starting to have some of those layoffs to cut costs, but I think there's going to be more down the line with him, and I, I wouldn't put it past him. I, I look at the chart, too, so we always have to bring in that component here. I mean, Disney's traded down from 180 to, to one, you know, 195, traded in this range. No one cares about charts in terms of telling that story. What they do tell you, though, is in terms of the, the, the valuation, um, where this company has come from and where it is, and, and the bad news that we've priced into the media world. Uh, if you're selling Disney, you're selling it at the bottom. And you're selling it at, at, at the bottom also, what the charts tell you, is really a almost a 10-year a range on the stock. I mean, after it re-rated with the the DTC business and the streaming business, um, it, it obviously a lot of excitement and all streamers pulled back. But, you know, to me, there's not a lot of great news priced into Disney here. There, there really isn't. And for a company that has, again, this diversified asset mix that does have optionality in what they can do with some of those assets, I think they're going to start paying a dividend next year. Uh, I think they're going to get back to normalcy. They, look, no, no company uh, really was hurt as much as Disney on some level in terms of the core business. All right, now to the latest moves by the Biden administration against China. The Treasury Secretary striking a hawkish tone in a speech earlier today, and there are fresh reports the president is threatening to impose new curbs on investment in China ahead of the G7 meeting. The details now from Kayla Tausche, who's live at the White House. Kayla. Melissa, Secretary Yellen's speech billed China as the aggressor in the global economy, calling out its unfair economic practices, barriers to market access, and coercion of vulnerable trading partners during what she described as a particularly tense moment between Washington and Beijing. But Yellen, who said she plans to travel to China at an appropriate time, also took the role of pragmatist and said Beijing has an opportunity to make different choices. Our path is not preordained and it is not destined to be costly. The trajectory of this relationship is the aggregate of choices that all of us in these two great powers make over time, including when to cooperate, when to compete. The remarks come as the Biden administration prepares to ratchet up restrictions on U.S. investment in Chinese semiconductors, AI, and quantum computing. Sources tell me the screening program will be structured as a one-year pilot with additional sectors possibly added after that. The administration is preparing to unveil the program in the coming weeks ahead of the G7 summit, and there could be more penalties to come. 
Three sources tell me the office of the U.S. Trade Representative is also considering raising tariffs on certain strategic Chinese exports as a penalty for China falling short on the phase one trade deal. This is the House Ways and Means leadership challenges USTR to enforce the deal more strictly. A review of those tariffs could come to a head later this year. A senior trade official says no final decision has been made, Melissa, but there is no shortage of pressure from both sides of Pennsylvania Avenue to do more. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Um, there was a, a definite sort of emphasis by the secretary, the Treasury Secretary on national security over economic interests, right? So she's basically saying we're going to do what is right for this country, whatever the consequences are for the economy, which is sort of frightening. It's stagflationary. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pure and simple. The IMF last week, the International Monetary Fund, their biannual meetings down in Washington, biannual, semiannual, I know. Twice a year? Twice a year. Oh, do we care, do do we care about those meetings? Sorry. I care a lot about those meetings because what I heard from hundreds of institutional investors attending those meetings is that they're starting to wonder how safe they feel going to China. I had never heard that before in my career. I was shocked by that. And I also heard that people are now pricing in a greater risk premium when they're looking at Chinese investments, not just because of what China might do, but to what you just reported, what the United States could do. You can't put your money in. You might not be able to get it out at what cost. And that's something you have to think about that five years ago, 10 years ago, we didn't. Right. They're looking at businesses. They're looking at private equity. They're looking at VC. They're looking at JVs. How did U.S. companies get into China to begin with? All with JVs. Are we going to start looking at that and looking at that as potential technology transfer, Tim? I mean, well, it, it, it has been and, yeah. and it has been. And, and this is the way as a guy who's been in emerging markets my whole career. You know, this is what happens. You know, you're welcome until we don't need you anymore. And this is what we've seen with a lot of companies. We've certainly seen this in China, seen it absolutely in Eastern Europe. And, and I think that discount on Chinese equities, though, this is nothing new. Right. If we look at what's been going on in the Chinese tech sector, we know that discount. And that's that's a discount that the Chinese government is putting on their own companies. Um, so I, I look at well, who does this benefit? Look, uh, the, some of the companies that I, I think it was more than a coincidence were up today like an AMAT. Um, you know, when you're talking about hardware and, and, and uh, component producers and folks that are going to benefit from staying at home. And then there's Intel, who hasn't been able to get out of their own way for a long time. And, and I just look at positioning. And I am long the stock, and I've been long the stock through good times and bad times. So, um, And these are, these are bad times in terms of the share price. Uh, but this stock is so under-owned, and, and, and the amount of money that's being thrown, uh, I think, in Intel's direction is something that's very interesting. We know about the discount on Chinese equities, but I don't know if there's a real discount on U.S. equities operating in China. Not yet. We've Not had yet. that chat, too. We've had that Especially chat. Especially for real brands like Apple. It happened, right. An Apple, a Starbucks, and I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, which I do think you're going to see investors worrying more and more about that as it becomes more realistic. And it is still... Uh, I would say far out in the future, right? There is nothing definitive that's happening yet, but that is where um, companies like Apple are going to be a little bit more under pressure because they have a lot of their sales that are coming from China. So China has been this um, tailwind as China reopens, but now it's suddenly going to be a headwind for people, and it, it is going to be a shift for investors, something you need to watch for. And that risk won't go away before the election in 2024. Likely. It'll probably get worse before it gets better. Yeah, so think about this. In, you know, in an interest rate environment that we are in right now, a lot of our U.S. multinationals were borrowing a lot of money at really cheap rates for years, buying back their stock, kind of uh, massaging their EPS for years. Think about an Apple. Think about a Tesla, how much stock or how much cash they have over in China and the difficulty it is just anyway for tax purposes and stuff to get that back. So when you think about that, I mean, to me, I think there are potential headwinds for some of these large uh, multinationals. The other thing that's interesting, Tim, you just mentioned some of the semis. I mean, 
NVIDIA just continues to go higher, right? And, and just, it just there doesn't seem to be a headline out there um, that is negative for this stock that trades at 24 times sales. Okay, like think about that. It's nearly a $700 billion market cap company. And I just think about this one and I say, as the day went on today, and I said more and more headlines about this, mm -hmm. did you see that this stock had a leg Started lower? To crack. Yeah, it did, and it sold off 2% towards the end of the day. And so to me, like, I think about like, if they really do have such an edge on all of their competitors for these advanced chips, um, this is going to be a centerpiece of, of this kind of negotiation. And to your point, um, Rebecca, this is not anything that's going to be settled anytime soon. So to me, it's not being priced into NVIDIA right now, clearly from a valuation standpoint. I am short this stock um, and will remain it. Um, I just don't see a whole heck of a lot of upside. I think all the great news, um, you know, Elon last night on their call said they're buying, you know, hand over GPUs. fist or GPOs. Yeah. Uh, we know what's going on with, you know, open AI and that sort of thing. So to me, I don't know. I think a lot's priced in right here in the stock. All right. Coming up, we are watching shares of CSX in the after hour session. The company just reporting results, details from the quarter straight ahead. But first, a rough day for Elon Musk. Tesla shares tanking as price cuts hit margins. The stock now uh, down over 22% this month. We will debate where it goes. And SpaceX launching the world's most powerful rocket this morning, but minutes after liftoff, the Starship exploded. The impact on Elon's space stream straight ahead. Fast Money, be right back. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Tesla shares plunging nearly 10% today. It is its biggest one-day loss since the second trading day of the year. The stock now at its lowest level since late January. But the big dip not deterring one of Tesla's biggest bulls. Last hour, ARK Invest Kathy Wood had this to say about the stock and where it's going. We do have a five-year uh, investment time horizon. Is uh, Our expected value is roughly uh, $2,000, and that's within a range of $1,400 to $2,500. Wood saying the promise of Tesla's yet-to-come robo-taxi fleet is a major driver for her valuation. Um, I was just looking, I was looking down at my phone because I was looking at this article from April 2022 in which ARK Invest CEO Kathy Wood came out with a price target of 4600 in 2026. So it seems like she's dialing back her expectations for this. That was also predicated on this notion that robo-taxi, and so there's sort of an optionality involved in, in self-driving and what that car can become. I know you're a bear, so yeah. I know you're going well, to poo all over no. this. But. Yeah, I added to my short on the opening today. Mm -hmm. I added a little towards the close. Um, my time horizon is much shorter. I actually think it's going 
probably break 100, which is where it was in January, and my price target is 69 to the downside. That might seem a little aggressive on 420 uh, on a day that it was just Elon day here. But mm. to me, I, I think there's something else going on here with Tesla. Um, we know that he had been selling Tesla shares all year last year to fund his purchase of Twitter. We know that SpaceX has been for sale. He's been looking to raise capital that way. You know, if this stock were to continue to go lower, if they are pushing out a manned trip to the moon, and that's what the whole idea of this rocket launch was today. Um, Twitter, they just marked down from $44 billion to $20 billion. He's got $13 billion. This is not a generally very liquid person. He used to be able to get whatever lines that he wanted to, but now he's got all these banks on the hook for this debt that he can't service based on Twitter's businesses. So to me, he might be entering the end game here a little bit for being the CEO of all of these companies and being that levered. And now, when you look at the stock right here, it's broken. The fundamentals have shifted. Not a single analyst on the street downgraded this stock, okay? There's plenty of price target downgrades. They will be downgrading the stock lower. I'm just telling you that, people, over the next three to six months or so. And that's when you have a situation where, you know, who knows if he's going to be in control of this company in the not-so-distant future because it, it doesn't seem like the Elon aura is playing out right now, the three biggest companies that he's but involved he, in. So even putting aside this sort of pivot, because they did sort of pivot yesterday when they were saying, we examine pricing on a weekly basis, we're going to cut keep cutting prices to keep the volume up. That's growth at all costs. That's sort of growth mode company for a company that may not necessarily be in growth mode right now. But putting that aside, you think the stock goes to 69 because he is too extended, that there's a liquidity issue. No, I, I so just that think that I, I think there's a demand issue. And I think there's a competition issue in China. And I think that if you're looking at the prices of an average price point of $45,000 for your, your car, and you've just seen margins go from 25% last year down to 19% and likely going lower, they have a big fundamental problem that I didn't hear a single analyst talk about. There's this guy, Gary Black, and he was on Max's, he was on Last Call last night. He's like the biggest bull ever on Twitter. He's always talking about Tesla. He seemed to have turned on this story. He's lowering his estimates. So earnings estimates are coming down, margin estimates estimates are coming down, delivery estimates are coming down, backlogs coming down, and inventory is going up. Does that sound like a good fundamental situation for you? I don't know, Rebecca. What do you think? I think he has a strong view on this. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, would, I would back up because Tesla's special. I don't want to comment on Tesla mm -hmm. per se, but just thinking about what's going to drive the auto demand. You know, the consumer right now is still fine, I'd say even globally, but we're definitely seeing moderation. You know, Q4 last year, we saw the biggest increase in nominal household debt that we had seen in 20 years. So the credit card spending has picked up a lot. The excess savings has been reduced. And now we're starting to hear anecdotally from the banks and, and from companies like Amex that they're starting to get a little more nervous on that consumer spend. And so if the consumers start ratcheting back, jobless claims today we saw ticking higher again. Guess what they're not buying? Teslas. Well, they're not I don't buying. Know how far you have to cut the cost to get them to buy? I, I agree, and they're not buying any cars. And, right. and if you you look at how Ford and GM have traded over the last couple of days too, and I agree, today's data anywhere, whether it was that Philly Fed, whether it was the jobless claims that are still, you know, like the, the market's still tight, but they they are weakening. Yes. Um, and and I think you have a dynamic here where it, it to me it just gets back to the multiple of Tesla. It's never made sense to me. It makes even less sense now. Um, and I believe it's a car company. I don't believe it's anything else. So um, and and I and I look at the chart that tells me this is is the last mega cap tech stock that never broke its downtrend going all the way back to 21 to November or December of 21. That still hasn't happened, whereas all the other ones at least started to outperform and started to break uh, to the upside. And I'm not saying that they do forever, uh, forever either. I think there's a reason why uh, the triple Q's and the mega caps 
kind of broke out around SVB. But um, I, you know, those are the things that make the most sense to me right now about Tesla. And it's never been clearer is that the multiple now, especially if it is a car company, if they are playing the competitive game to, to you know, to outproduce everybody else and take on the competition, I still think competition is pretty tough out there, too. Yeah, I was actually surprised that it closed the day down less than 10 percent, I thought, because it seemed like a narrative shift that they were presenting, management was presenting on the conference call. It is. Yeah, they really focused on the fact that they are trying to um, increase demand kind of at all costs. So they're willing to cut the prices on their cars, which is interesting because they've done it so many times. I think this is their fifth price cut that now it comes to the point where consumers are saying, well, are they going to keep doing this? I'll if just they're so concerned about I'll the wait. economy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so I think there there is going to be some of that dynamic, but it is clearly a problem of their demand going forward. Um, but I, I'm with Tim here. I think on the, the valuation is really where the concern is. Just to put this in perspective, it trades about 42 times next year's earnings, a Ford and a GM or seven and five times next year's earnings just to, to show how expensive that is. Um, and I think ultimately it's just it's eventually got to become closer to that. Well, Tesla options far and away the most active in the market today. Mike Coe's got the action. It usually is. Mike, what'd you see today? Yeah, it, it usually is. Number one, it, it actually wasn't two days ago when we highlighted some bearish flow ahead of earnings. It was very busy yesterday, but today it was far and away the busiest. It traded four and a half times as many contracts as the second place, which is NVIDIA. It was more than 4 million contracts. In fact, in contract terms, it was the second busiest option out there after SPY. Uh, unsurprisingly, based on the news that we saw uh, after the close yesterday, the flow, the sentiment was generally bearish. Much of the activity we saw today actually expires tomorrow. But when we look further out to, to the end of next week, the flow we were seeing was uh, a lot of activity in the 160 puts, almost 55,000 contracts there trading for a little over three bucks a contract. Those buyers obviously betting that there is potentially further weakness. And I would add sort of speaking to Courtney and Tim's point here, too, as well, that all the other automakers also saw uh, significant bearish flows, too. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Mike Co. for more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, shares of CSX on the move after reporting results. We'll bring the details from the quarter next. And a correction is coming in a big way to the VC world in Silicon Valley. That is according to our next guest. How bad is the environment going to get for startups? Stick around to find out. You're watching Fast Money Live from the NASDAQ market side in Times Square. Back right after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks closing lower as more earnings filtered in. The Dow dropping 110 points. The S&P falling more than a half a percent. And the Nasdaq leading the losses down eight-tenths of a percent. Oil closing lower as economic slowdown fears heat up. Crude down more than 2% on pace for its first negative week in five. And some communication stocks also in the red. AT&T dropping more than 10% after a revenue miss. Verizon falling in sympathy. But on the plus side, some positive action in housing. DR Horton reporting a beat on the top and bottom line this morning, hitting a new 52-week high. The move pushing other home builder stocks higher. The ITB ETF also hitting a new 52-week high. 
All right, moving on here. Earnings alert on CSX. Shares of the company gaining steam in overtime after topping Q1 estimates on the top and the bottom lines. Gains in its merchandise segment and fuel surcharges driving CSX revenues higher for the quarter. Frank Collins got the latest from the conference call. Frank. Hey there, Melissa. The beat in the merchandise segment for CMX is really the story of this quarter. That's higher margin freight, chemicals, food products, and automotive. Coal also a strong beat, despite a warmer than usual winter that Union Pacific said softened demand for coal. Union Pacific and West Coast Rail talked about slowing volumes, and J.B. Hunt, the biggest container shipper at the West Coast ports, talked about a freight recession earlier this week. But CSX CEO Joe Hyrinks told a much different story on this call. Strong demand for grains, metals, minerals, and automotive, combined with significant new customer wins, give us increasing confidence that we will be able to deliver a solid volume growth of the year in merchandise. We're also off to a strong start of the year for coal. CSX also saw revenue per unit rise and had a strong beat on operation radio. This is an efficiency metric. The percent of expenses to revenue so lower is actually better. Melissa, back over to you. All right, Frank, thanks for that. Frank Holland on CSX. Um, where do you go on the rails, transports in general? Well, I mean, we've there, there's serious divergence within that group. I mean, mm-hmm. and also then look at UPS and FedEx, which have been rockets. Um, CSX has actually been very conservative over the last year when you've had all kinds of headwinds because, again, their yields were up 14 percent year over year because coal yields were up. 55%. And I think that's what Frank just alluded to. Their volumes actually inflected positive, and they, they gave a pretty good guide. The analyst community is reasonably bullish here. Um, and just because of all the recessionary headwinds, remember a lot of the pent-up demand and a lot of stuff that we needed to move around, the, the rails were um, at least lagging, and they're still getting some of that reopening dynamic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, transports, in, and I understand it's a very diverse group, but transports have been underperforming the Dow, which coined Dow, Dow theorists. For all of you Dow theorists out there, not a good sign for the markets. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of this, too, is due to, especially um, last year and even this year, this is still a bit of a, an issue, is fuel costs have been really one of the biggest issues when it comes to your transports. And we are starting to see those come down, which really should benefit them. Um, and you are starting to see, I mean, especially with the CSX, um, their coal has really been like their, their biggest driver here, which I think you're going to see moving forward. Um, so I think it's something to take a look at. I don't think it's the most you know, exciting stock out there. But, yeah, I'm, I wouldn't be negative on it. All right. Coming up, why failure may be an option soon in Silicon Valley, how the banking price is taking a serious toll on the once uncontrollable growth in tech land. Plus, a number of names on the move post earnings this morning. Our traders are picking out the ones to watch. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Silicon Valley may have its own reckoning in the wake of the banking crisis sparked by SVB, a major VC executive warning his industry is entering a multi-year correction. Chucky Reddy is a partner at QED Investors. It's an early stage VC fintech firm known for its involvement in Credit Karma. Chucky, great to have you with us. Great to be here. It seems like there's a one-two punch that's going to hit VC. Not only are rates rising, but we also have this banking crisis affecting lending, credit crunch coming. Yeah, I mean, VCs for the first time in 20 plus years is actually going to correct. Um, you know, it's one of the few industries that didn't go through a correction in 2008. Um, and so since the tech bubble burst 22 years ago was the last time there was a meaningful correction around venture capital. And it was a, more of a cottage industry that, at that point. You know, there had been a little bit of growth in tech, but it didn't really uh, go all the way around. And now we're starting to see that unlimited capital going into the market people being hired through all these companies and all these VC firms, tons of VC firms being around, you know, we're about to go through that two or three year cycle where we're probably going to have a correction. 
So, Chuck, you talked to us a little bit. There was a lot of capital raised in 2021 before the public market started correcting, right? And so it's kind of sitting there. I talked to a lot of VCs like yourself there. You know, you have capital to deploy. Um, are we going to start seeing more deals, but just at kind of lower valuation levels? Because where you guys play, this is just a secular trend that's going to be going on in fintech for decades now. And I'm sure you're still seeing opportunities um, probably at much better valuations than maybe a year ago. We are starting to see better opportunities, but the opportunities we're seeing are maybe not as high quality. And so I think that's one of the reasons people aren't putting money to work. The other thing is I think people think they're going to be able to buy it for cheaper tomorrow. So we're in this like deflationary period where we haven't hit the bottom yet. We thought there'd be a wall that would come of maturities and all of a sudden a ton of, tons of deal activity would happen, but we still haven't seen that. One thing after Silicon Valley Bank um, had its demise, everyone started saying next shoe, next shoe to drop. And you hear a lot about commercial real estate. You also hear a lot about non-bank financial institutions, which includes asset managers, insurance, hedge funds, and private asset managers. The call is for more data, more regulation. What are you hearing? What do you think is coming down the pipe in terms of more government oversight for your industry? For venture capital, it doesn't seem as though there's probably that much oversight coming per se. Um, but I think when it comes to banking, we have probably seen, um, you know, such a small event happen in a relative sense. So the, regu the regulations actually generally worked with the exception of one, one change that was made with respect to the size of what institution would become a systemically important financial institution and be uh, governed a different way. So I don't see that much regula regulation coming from what we've seen so thus far. But if things continue to get worse is when you'll start to see the regulatory uh, folks pick up their head. Will we see a wave of bankruptcy uh, among early stage firms at this point? I mean, there's a point where you say we're not going to put more money into this firm because our, you know, our just our framework is going to be different in this environment in terms of investing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we had three years in our portfolio without one zero, wow. uh, which is pretty crazy for an early stage uh, fintech firm. Uh, we are starting to see the failures happen, but they're relatively slow because of what Dan talked about. Right. A lot of people put so much money and overcapitalize these companies, and they'll run until there's literally one dollar left in the bank. And so they're not going to they're not going to fold tent if they have you know a million dollars left. They're going to continue to operate and punch like they're going to get out of it. But yep. I would think that that time frame is shortened if there's a recession. Yes, absolutely. You know your your top line starts to shrink very quickly, and then you just you know your burn goes up, and that's uh, that's you know game over. All right, Chucky, thanks so much for coming by. Great to have you with us. We'll see you again soon. Absolutely. Chucky thanks so Ruffy. much. QED. That sounds kind of scary. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating time, uh, although yeah. I'm sure there are many in the VC world that say that they, they, they welcome the shaking out of this. I mean, they, you know, it, things have gotten really fluffy. Um, it's also an interesting dynamic because there are a lot, especially in the private equity world, there, there are a lot of funding obligations for bad companies. Um, and, and private equity companies have to make some really difficult decisions. Are they going to keep throwing money um, down the hole on a company that they've been supporting for the last two years right. of not making money? Um, and we see this, and I see this in a lot of different industries. I've seen this in the cannabis industry. Like, you see, you see private equity guys that are at some point, like, they're hemorrhaging, too, because they're forced. Uh, at some point, this is very good for the public markets, okay? I mean, this, if you think about both scarcity value and if you think about just at least it, the, the quality factor of those companies that are here, um, that are, you know, growth companies and need to be given the right multiple, um, right now they're not being given that. But I think this bodes, whenever that is, this is good for publics. 
Yeah, you made a great question. The question you had about are we going to start seeing companies go out of business, you know, before SVB, there was calls for mass extinction events of, of really poorly capitalized, bad valuations. And so you got to think that that's going to start to accelerate. To your other point is they can only cut so much before they just kind of have to, like, shut the doors. All right. Up next, from housing to chips to smokes, the earnings movers from today that caught our traders' eyes. Plus, the fast pitch is back. Our next guest is throwing out a curveball healthcare pick. But will the traders be swinging on this one? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. We want to dig into some of the big movers from today's earnings before the bell. American Express, Taiwan Semi, Philip Morris, and Dr. Horton, just some of the names on the move. So, which one stood out? Courtney, uh, you're leaning towards Dear Horton? Yes. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the home builders, which uh, people have been very negative on, and they're continue to hit 52-week highs, even though mortgage rates have remained very high. And I think at this point, what you're really seeing with the home builders is they're trading a lot more on the supply-demand constraints, which people are extremely um, underestimating how um, you know aggressive that is. There's so many more people who need houses than houses available. Just to put it in perspective, right now, new builds are about th- uh, a third of available houses, whereas typically only about 10% of available houses. And it's because people who have houses right now aren't selling them. They don't want to sell and get into a higher mortgage. So that's going to benefit these home builders. And I think that's going to continue to happen, especially as your millennials and Gen Zs are starting to get into that home buyers. Um, There's not enough houses to go around. I think that's going to continue. It was a strong day across the board when it comes to housing at large, not just the builders, but the retailers, the materials, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Want to get to Taiwan Semi. Rebecca, you're watching this very closely, not just for the results, but also because they want more money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) we've, We've been talking a little bit with Florida, with U.S. China, about more interventionist governments. And TSMC, I think, you know, aside from what's going on within the company itself, is a great example of of the dynamics here. You know, the U.S. wants to get these super advanced chips in America. So if anything happens to Taiwan, we're good. But doing that is coming at a price. And the U.S. has already given them um, quite a lot in subsidies, and now they're asking for more to increase the build in Arizona. I think it's $15 billion in subsidies. That was what was reported they're asking for. And so when you take a step back and say, okay, we're going to have national security, economic resilience at a cost of stagflation. And so when you think about well, what does that mean for everything, it means we're going to have relatively higher discount rates, which affects how we think about earnings and valuations. Um, And we're probably going to have inflation settling medium term at a slightly higher level. And we're going to have lower levels of growth. And that came through again in the IMF meetings last week. They're predicting five, no recession, which is interesting, but five years of very uninspiring low growth globally. And so TSMC, what's happening there, I think, is a microcosm of what's happening on the global stage. Right. All right, coming up, we are dusting off the gloves, bringing you a fast pitch while your next guest is throwing some heat on one healthcare stock. You can feel good about the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Healthcare company Evalent Health has been on a tear this year, soaring more than 26% year to date. Essex Investments Management's Nancy Pryle thinks the stock's growth plan could knock it out of the park. She joins us now for a fast pitch. Nancy, welcome to the show again. Tell us about Evelyn. This is, you know, to be honest, this is a company, the traders here, they said, we've never heard of this one. So what does it do and why do you like it? Yes. So Evelyn Healthcare is a um, player in the value-based healthcare space. Value-based healthcare is a way to get better outcomes while still getting cost control 
really starting to gain traction, not only with private payers like Molina, Centene, Humana, et cetera, but also with the government. And there's some talk that for um, Medicare bids, they're going to start to require value-based health care because it is a way to get these much better outcomes. What we like about Evelyn is they are beating the numbers. They beat nicely in the fourth quarter. They raised guidance in the first quarter. Revenues are growing about 45%. They're just breaking into profitability. Return on equity is improving. So they are expecting to be at a $300 million run rate on EBITDA by the fourth quarter of 2024. That translates to about a buck 65 in earnings. Two times sales on the fiscal 24 sales gets you to a $50 stock. We think it's a really strong buy here. Secular growth, cyclical tailwinds, good spending patterns. Is this like a tech company that operates in the healthcare space? Is it a health, I mean, I'm just trying to understand how a Molina or a Centene uses this. Yeah, so they provide the technology that underlays these value-based systems. So yeah, you can think of them as a software company, um, but they're playing in the healthcare space and healthcare is an area we like particularly as we go into this slower economic scenario to find a company that can continue to beat and raise is going to be increasingly scarce. How did they fare during the last recession? Um, so this is a relatively new business, and um, they've been growing by acquisition, and they're a relatively new company. So we don't really know, but we do know that healthcare tends to do well in recessionary times. And what we've seen in value-based care is that it is a way, again, to manage costs. It's a way to smooth out the revenue stream for the physicians and the practices that use value-based care. So all indications are that it will do very well, even in a recessionary environment. All right, Nancy, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Nancy Pryle. All right, so let's go around the horn here and see what the traders think of this pitch. Evelynt Health EVH is the ticker. Tim Seymour, why don't you kick us off? Do I hold on my board, too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, you're yeah. at the practice of the board. But. Yeah, it's a buy, by the way. That also says, let's go Rangers, in case anybody wanted to understand. That's cross hockey sticks. I thought that was a great pitch. I think it's a really interesting area. Value-based care is kind of like a it's, it's a, it's a, it's a leading edge in the healthcare business. Uh, about improving costs, but also improving outcomes. And I think the, the trend here has certainly uh, got their back. They're one of the leading players, and, and I like the call. Uh, Courtney. Um, I have a pass on this. I, <laughs> I'm not going to be buying that it. That's the neatest handwriting. Did you actually write that, or is that like a stencil? Yeah, I, 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 it's a stencil over here. That would be that nice. Pretty cool. yeah. It's very nice handwriting. Um, I think cool. my problem is um, they're getting into profitability, which she mentioned, but they're not yet profitable. It is more expensive than its peers. Um, it is a very small company, so it's not something that I'd be jumping into right now. All right, Rebecca? So I'm saying within the small cap space, I'm not very happy. Mm-hmm. Because I think we're in that part of the cycle where small cap is going to be even more challenged than large cap companies to get the funding they need to grow. And small caps, generally speaking, are much more leveraged. However, if I'm thinking about where I'm allocating generally across equities, I like healthcare and I like adding on weakness into healthcare. So I would probably prefer a bigger cap healthcare name. Mm-hmm. But if I'm doing security selection within small cap, then this makes sense to look at. All right. Dan. I was just going to say what she said. Um, <laughs> And that, no. Oh, your handwriting is good. What happened to you? you I just said. Your I just said sure. Um, <laughs> like, like, listen, that was a great pitch. And, it was. But I just say this. I went and looked at the chart. This stock in September was trading at a 52-week all-time high, very near 40, and by November it was trading very near 20. 
um, to a 52-week low. And so I don't have an expertise in small caps. I certainly don't in healthcare. So that's why I said that's what you said. Um, I, I like what you had to say there. You all get A-pluses for your blackboard work. Yeah. Very good work, guys. It's been a long time since we had the blackboard. That's kind of an exciting day in its own way. Thank you. Up next, final trades. Welcome back. Before we get to final trades, we want to highlight a new op-ed by Rebecca on CNBC.com. Rebecca serves as a chair of the Board of the Council of Economic Education, whose mission is to teach K-12 students about economics and personal finance. Her piece stresses the importance of teaching personal finance to teachers first. Rebecca, it is shocking when I read through this op-ed how little there is required um, in, in terms of coursework for financial literacy. Basically nothing. Yeah, so half the states in the country require one class in economics or personal finance to graduate, which is kind of amazing when you think that these kids graduate, many go to college, they don't know how to use a credit card, they don't know how to save for retirement, um, and then they turn into people making decisions about, oh, I don't know, banks, policy. Um, So we need to start young and we need to do more. Right now, if we hit the next five biggest states that don't require anything, and I'm gonna name them, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Washington State, Massachusetts, Maryland, that would reflect 15% of GDP and almost 14% of all American high school students. So it only takes a little bit, five states, to have a huge impact on the economy broadly and to train the teachers to train those students. We need to get less than 1% of all the teachers in high schools in the United States to get every kid educated. So to me, this is a no-brainer, but we need state governments right. to move. Right. It's all local. Um, in terms of raising money, there's an interesting auction. Yeah, Somebody is auctioning one. up his time. This so the, the founder of my former firm, Bridgewater Associates, Ray Dalio, has very generously agreed to have a private lunch with the winner and up to two guests with him in New York City at some point in the next year in support of financial literacy. That's awesome. Yeah, this is one of the most brilliant thinkers of our generation, someone who built a hedge fund from scratch and is now the biggest in the world. Websites on the screen, check it out, start bidding. Bid it up. Final trade, let's go around the horn, Tim. Yeah, I think you're going to be bidding up Disney at some point. Again, I get back to the asset mix. I think you've also, uh, you've got a company that is now going to pull subscriber forecasts and focus on profitability. I think that's where we are in 24. Courtney. American Express, it was down today on really concerns about their loan loss provisions, but I think there's actually a lot of positivity when you underlook uh, their overall numbers, and I think it's worth a play here. Rebecca. Uh, I'm going to sell small caps. Russell. Dan Nathan. Uh, I remain a seller of NVIDIA, and I got a lot smaller, uh, smarter sitting next to her today. I know. It was great right? having you here on set, Rebecca. Great to be Hope with you, you guys. Come back. Thanks for watching Fast Money. We'll see you tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Madden Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. 
with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 